Welcome to The Mastering Show. This is the show where we cover all aspects of mastering. Thank you guys for uh, listening. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm Steve Cherubino, just one of your hosts. Also joining me, the man who brings the knowledge to the show, my co-host, Ian Shepard. What's going on, Ian? Time travel. Um, by which I mean that this episode was actually recorded over a month ago, immediately after the episode on analog versus digital, episode nine. So that means that a couple of times during this episode, you're going to hear me referring to having said something last week. And what I mean is four weeks ago. And now back to the present or the past or something. I'm very confused. Okay, well, as promised last week, uh, this week, well, in fact, I didn't promise it last week, but I'm going to deliver on the promise I didn't make, uh, which is we're going to talk about mastering for vinyl and vinyl in general. Um, do you do you use vinyl? Do you like vinyl? Do you have vinyl? Like vinyl car seats? <laughs> yeah, you know, for, for when you have incontinence problems. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't have vinyl. I haven't listened to vinyl in a long time. I forget what vinyl sounds like, to be honest. Um, I'm a digital dude, so uh, I haven't listened. Okay, so I mean, I I am I, I love vinyl, uh, or I mean, I don't have any now either. Actually, that's not strictly true. I have a few LPs that I've kind of kept around for for sentimental value. If anybody looks at my videos, if you look behind me in the corner of the room, there, there's a copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy LP version. Uh, sitting up there, is that which is kind of narration, f- or is that music from made for, uh, based off of the book? Ah, you see, originally it was a radio series. Um, this is what lots of people don't know. Before it was TV, before it was a film, before it was a book, um, it was on the radio. This is the LP version of the radio show, ah. which was the second version ever to come out. The fascinating thing about it that I didn't realize until recently is they had to completely re-record it because they didn't have the copyright license for any of the music that they used in the original radio shows so well it does suck but the interesting thing is i actually think some of the performances are better uh-huh. because the actors knew the material like because douglas adams wrote everything right at the last minute um so i think some of their performances are better and i, I quite like the music that got written for it as well um so anyway um it, it's a bit of a it's a kind of a little touchstone for me because that was the that was the moment it was listening to the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy on headphones when i was 10 that i kind of looked at my dad and said the spacecraft just flew over my head. And he was like, yeah, that's stereo. I'll tell you about that later. And that was kind of the moment when I was like, I want to do that. Wow. That's a cool so, story, uh, man. Yeah. it's Well, and the, I tell you the great thing is that my uh, eldest boy now is 11 and about two months ago, he did exactly the same thing, except I found for him, did you ever hear the the radio series of Star Wars? I haven't. Right after Star Wars came out, they made um, a, a radio adaptation of it, which I, I don't think any of the... Oh, I, I had the guy who does um, C-3PO and maybe a couple of other people who were actually the stars from the from the movies in there, but um, with loads of original sound effects and all the original music. So ah. it really has the kind of atmosphere. And anyway, I found, you can still get this. You can uh, buy it on CD, which is pretty expensive. But So yeah, I put this on, uh, on his phone while he was uh, off school ill hmm. and i went up there to see how he was doing in the middle of the afternoon and he kind of he said do the spaceships fly across from one side to the other and i was like yep they do that's oh stereo god. i'll tell you about it later oh i know my god that's like the cats in the cradle song yeah. 
it's uh anyway so there you go so very cool how did i get into that okay so that's a piece of vinyl that i do have but i mean i grew up i mean you probably did as well i, I grew up with vinyl i used to you know i mean the, the original i didn't hear the original hitchhikers radio series all the way through the, that's why i have the vinyl is because i took it out of the local library so i just love the you know the the, the big packaging the, the physical feel of the the disc going on the turntable dropping the needle into the groove uh, you know, sitting there staring at the artwork. Um, I was uh, I was a bit of a prog fan in my teens, so I would I had like all those early Marillion albums where there was all these kind of hidden pictures in the artwork and stuff, and I would just sit there and read the lyrics and all that. So I love everything about vinyl except the way it sounds. Oh, really? <laughs> I I mean that's not strictly true. I love the way it sounds until it gets about halfway through a side, and then you get this thing that some people seem to be complete. They just don't hear, but it always bugged me from, well, since I first heard the format, which is that gradually you had this increasing distortion um, because yeah. basically the angular velocity, the needle changes as the tone arm moves. The, uh, let me think about it. Either the speed of the grooves decreases, right? Because there's less distance for the needle to travel around the record, but it's spinning at a constant speed. Um, so you, it's 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 not lower resolution, but it's kind of like lower resolution signal. So, I mean, one of the tricks that nobody these days knows about is if you're going to have something cut to vinyl, put the loud stuff at the beginning of each side and put the quieter stuff towards the end because you'll get or you'll notice less distortion um, happening when you do that. Wow. That's something I had no idea about um, until recently. Um so yeah, I don't, I don't mind the rumble, I don't mind the surface noise, I don't mind the clicks and the pops, um, but that distortion just oh, makes my teeth ache. So if it wasn't for that distortion, you would like it? Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. I was going to talk about this later, but I have recently heard about this new thing called HD vinyl, which kind of sounds like a bit of a, a, a contradiction, but apparently the idea is that instead of using a traditional cutting lathe, they're actually going to etch the stamper directly using a laser, which cuts from a 3D computer model of the groove based on the music that you're mastering. But the really interesting thing to me is that in theory, they can compensate for all that distortion I was just talking about, right? Because it's a known quantity, the, the change of angle, the change of speed, right, all that stuff. Right they should be able to program in algorithms to kind of reverse engineer the negative effects of that out of the record. So the groove kind so, of slants at a little bit of an angle? I guess so. I, I haven't figured out in my head exactly how it works. But, you know, the, the basic concept is you should get much more consistent performance across the side of vinyl. And, and overall, you know, they're claiming better frequency response, better linearity, all these kind of things. So that's a. I mean, I'll be interested to see how that sounds when it comes out. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's still going to have a lot of the, the kind of the fundamental limitations of vinyl that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but that might kind of solve the, my biggest issue with it as a format. Um, so, what, what, what about vinyl? You know, when you thought about doing that as a topic today, what about vinyl made it a topic for you? Well, it's something I get asked a lot of questions about. Um, I, it, it, probably once or twice a week, somebody emails me saying, I have, I, I want to put stuff out on vinyl. Can you give me some hints and tips to get uh, good results? Uh. And I'm going to cover that in, in a little while. But the other thing that I get that people are really interested in is 
lots of people think that vinyl sounds better than digital. I mean, they think it sounds better than MP3. I would probably agree with that because I hate the sound of MP3s. Yeah. Um, and I would almost take the distortion at the end of a side over MP3 artifacts. Well, thank God we would never release this podcast in MP3 form. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> that would be terrible. Yeah. Oh, wait. Um, the, I mean, this is the thing. At a, at a reasonable bit rate, and depending on the material, MP3 can be fine. But yeah. I, I can see an argument where people would, would prefer vinyl over MP3. But M vinyl over CD... You know, I mean, just in terms of the technical specifications, CD just kicks vinyl out of the park. Um, except, that, I mean, there are some points that people make, so I'm going to kind of address some of those um, and give you my kind of opinion on them. Because, I mean, so one thing that, that is real about vinyl, one common thing that happens is that people get the CD, especially if it's a loudness war casualty, they get the vinyl and it sounds better to them. Uh, it sounds like it has more life in the sound. It sounds more open, more spacious, more dynamic. Um, and there are two possible reasons put forward to that. One of them is valid. The other one I'm not so sure about. So the reason that is valid is that sometimes the vinyl actually gets a more dynamic master than right. the CD. I was just going to guess that. Okay. Because if you crushed the master for vinyl, what would it pop the needle out of the groove? Well, interestingly, no. In fact, just a quick tangent. This is something that people keep saying. If you if you put a loudness war thing onto vinyl, it will pop the needle out of the groove. Actually, the opposite is true. It is possible to jump the needle out of the groove on vinyl, but what the, the thing that causes that is really dynamic ah. bass. So back in the days when, I mean, so the first example I know of was the Beatles. They wanted to get the records to sound more like the stuff that was coming out of America. And there was Motown who were, who were really doing loudness. I mean, there was a loudness war back then, except it was on vinyl. And when the engineers at Abbey Road analyzed the difference between the two, they found that the bass in the American releases was much more controlled because they were using compression. So around about the time, I think Paperback Writer was the first Beatles single where they... A, they overdubbed Paul's bass afterwards, um, which had an important musical effect, interestingly enough, which is those amazing melodic bass lines that he became famous for because he had more time to think about what he was going to play right. and the, the luxury of doing it as an overdub. I think that kind of really enhanced what he was able to do musically. But also they used uh, compressors. I think they went out and bunch, bought a bunch of, of Fairchild um, compressor limiters and, uh, and Pultec EQs and stuff. Huh. Um, and by compressing the bass, they were able to obviously put it on there at a higher level without those dynamic spikes that would have caused problems for playback. Gotcha. So it's not actually, no. I mean, you, so, so to, to, to take the extreme example, the vinyl release of Death Magnetic, which is one of Metallica's, you know, really famous kind of loudness war casualty album, um, the vinyl sounds almost identical to the CD. Um, they cut it pretty much as was. What you have, what you can't do, is cut it at that maximum or that maximized level, um, because uh, you can actually burn out the cutting lathe, the head on the cutting lathe. Really? Yeah. So it's it's more that um, you know no sane vinyl engineer is going to do that. I see. Um, and what that means is because you can't cut above a certain loudness onto vinyl, 
Um, but like in digital, it's as it is with the whole loudness normalization that we talked about a few episodes ago. It's it's kind of pointless to do to put that super crushed version on there because you're just wasting headroom. Um, and also, I think possibly because people are aware that you know the vinyl buying public tend to be maybe more concerned about uh, sonics and fidelity, kind of ironically considering it's technically an inferior format. But um, <laughs> they uh, so, so there is this trend to to do a separate master for the vinyl that is more dynamic and that will sound better. Um, the other kind of factor in all of this is that if you try and cut something that is peak limited, heavily peak limited or clipped to vinyl, the, you know, basically the, 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 the cutting lathe can't track the squared off waveforms accurately. Um, and it, it kind of, I actually don't know exactly what goes wrong. I guess it overshoots or it, you know, in its attempt to track those waveforms, you get something that actually sounds even uglier than what went in. Oh, wow. Whereas if you put in a waveform that is cleaner, the cutting lathe can track it cleanly um, and you get an overall better result. So kind of getting ahead of myself, but a top tip for doing master for vinyl is just not to push the levels too high. Um, so that's a valid reason why vinyl can sound better. Yeah. If you have a genuinely better cut, um, then the, the benefits of those extra dynamics could outweigh the disadvantages that I find there are with vinyl as a format. The reason that people give that I don't think is doesn't doesn't stand up is just this idea that oh vinyl just sounds better. Right. Um now part of that is because of this belief that analog sounds better than digital and I think we pretty much did that to death last episode. Yeah. You know that there it's absolutely possible to do digital that sounds as good as any analog system you care to mention especially if you're going to use high bit depths and high sample rates. Right. One uh, kind of extension of the idea is that if you have an entirely analog mastering path, so say you have something that's been mixed to, to uh, one inch tape, and that gets that goes through an analog mastering chain and then goes straight to the to the cutting lathe, so there's no digital processing involved at all. Right. That's kind of considered the holy grail amongst a lot of vinyl um, aficionados. For me, that doesn't stand up because, as we said last episode, digital can absolutely reproduce pretty much any analog signal you care to throw at it. Um, the other thing that's ironic is that lots of people who, as I mentioned last week, love their vinyl so much don't realise that from somewhere in the 70s onwards, late 70s, uh, almost every vinyl release went through a digital delay line. Oh, really? Because they have to... Uh, in order to monitor the signal that's going onto the to, down to the cut, um, you can't monitor what's coming off of the lathe. So what they actually do is they put a tiny little delay, so you hear the the, the cutting engineer hears the signal maybe a second or two before it actually hits the lathe and gets cut into the lacquer. So that converts it to digital. Yeah, they put in a quite often twelve bit digital delay line it used to be done with tape you used to have an extra kind of you would spool the tape out around extra spools on a we had a, a studio a80 at uh, srt where i used to work and you can you can see the extra the different tape path for when you're cutting so that um then you have an extra playback head in the chain right so you have a playback chair you have a playback head then the tape goes through this extra loop to, to introduce this delay and then it hits 
the playback head that actually goes to the lathe. Wow. It's pretty wild. Um, yeah. And so they replaced that with a digital version. Um, but yeah, they did that, you know, at a point where everybody, so, so there's kind of all these evangelists talking about the, the, the purity of the vinyl sound and all the rest of it. And they don't realize it's been through lower quality digital systems than you find in any $20 CD player. Right. Right. Um, anyway, that's a fun fact to, uh, probably annoy people with. Yeah. There's, there's all kinds of fun facts to annoy people with in this, <laughs> this stuff. Um, I think, you know, the bottom line is, uh, I mean, the other thing to say is I think lots of people actually quite like the slightly distorted sound of vinyl that, that I really don't like. Um, and I actually, for me, I hear quite a lot of the current trend in terms of saturation and kind of soft clipping and all of these processes that people are throwing at mixes and masters these days. I wonder whether that's actually an attempt to recreate that kind of slightly soft, crunchy vinyl sound from yeah, back in the day. It could um, be. For me personally, I don't, I don't mind it sometimes, but to have it kind of plastered a, across everything, I, I don't like. Yeah. Um, so, oh, th so there's one other thing that I have to talk about in terms of the the extra dynamics on vinyl, um, which is that you have to be very careful. You, you'll see there's a lot of people out there. If you go to the the online dynamic range database that measures the uh, the crest factor values for recordings out there, you'll quite often see the vinyl releases separately from the CD releases. And the numbers tend to be higher in the vinyl releases. And lots of people take those as pretty much kind of proof that vinyl always is more dynamic and sounds better than CD. Unfortunately, it's not that simple because everything that gets cut to vinyl uh, has a pre-emphasis and de-emphasis EQ curve on it, basically. Um, so what happens is you effectively going down onto the vinyl, you boost the highs and cut the lows, and then coming back off the vinyl, you boost the lows and cut the highs. It's kind of like a, you know, a bias thing on old style analog tape. Um, and that's why you get quite a lot of rumble off of a record deck in comparison to, say, you don't have that same kind of white noise effect up in the high end. What that means is you've got a pretty hefty analog filtering system over the signal, even if you cut the record flat otherwise. Um, it's called the RIAA curve. Okay. And with any analog filter, something called phase rotation happens, which is basically just because of the way the filters are designed, the different frequencies are affected slightly differently by the filter. And that means that the absolutely precise timing of the bass, mid, and treble doesn't line up anymore after it's been through the, the filter. And what that means is that the peak waveform shape will change. The sound doesn't really change that much at all. You probably, you know, you can you have something called an all-pass filter where, it, as far as your ears are concerned, nothing much has happened. Yeah. But the waveform will change shape if you zoomed in and looked at it. It would look different. And what you find is when you do that to a, a waveform that's been heavily limited or heavily clipped, all these extra spikes appear in the waveform that weren't there before. <laughs> But they're not genuine dynamic spikes like transients and stuff that have suddenly have been magically restored to the signal. Right. It's just an a side effect of having been through an analog filter. And you can actually you can emulate it in digital as well. If you take a an EQ, if you have a if you have a phase linear EQ, 
you won't see this effect. But if you have one that emulates an analog EQ, you can see, and, and I mean, quite, quite big changes. You can see like two, three, four dBs of extra peak level on the waveform kind of magically appear. <laughs> but when you listen to it, when you AB it, there's a tiny little difference, but right. it's not what you might think. So there's a lot of people out there using things like the, the TT meter, um, digital meters to measure the vinyl, comparing it to the CD and going, well, there, look, see, it's two to three dBs more dynamic. Right. Um, and actually it's not. There are releases where it genuinely is more dynamic because somebody has done a better master for the vinyl. You know, so it's not like that never happens, but I don't think it happens nearly as often as people think it does. Um, and, you know, there's other complications like the extra, um, like different EQ that might be used at the mastering stage, uh, the, using a vinyl cut. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself because then we'll get to the hints and tips for, for vinyl mastering. So I, I picture you at a cocktail party armed with all this knowledge and, you know, like an analog, um, you know, audiophile type guy coming up to you and saying things like how much better vinyl is and stuff. And you just come out with this and you just shoot them down. This is what I picture. Happening. See, okay. Okay. So, so the first, when you first said that you said you pictured me at a cocktail bar or whatever it was party with, with all of this information. And I kind of pictured myself with this kind of circle of space around me as everybody kind of moved away from the audio nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like oil and water. I, I know. Um, I mean, like I see you hit, getting in a heated conversation and then winning that battle with this knowledge. I, I don't do that. I'm too British. Yeah. I'm too. I'm too polite. I kind of. I just kind of smile and say, "Well, yeah, it's it's probably not quite as simple as that." Or I don't know. I think there are some questions there that haven't been answered. But <laughs> really, no. I would. Oh no, I would. Yeah, I, I would very rarely kind of go in and demolish somebody if I knew them well. If we were good friends, <laughs> right. I would. I would pound them into the ground. But if you know, if it was a kind of, you know, if it's kind of, you know, the the boyfriend of your wife's friend or something like that, n no way. I wouldn't. That's, right. That'd just be too rude. It's, Sorry. It's polite. It's polite of you. <laughs> okay, so that kind of that was the spiel on the, the kind of the differences between analog and digital as regards to vinyl. Okay. And, you know, I do think there's a special magic about vinyl, but for me, it's more about the experience than it is about the actual sound. Um, so, you know, if, I mean, if HD vinyl was really good, and I guess an ideal format for me would be something that kind of looked like vinyl, the rest of it, you pick the needle up, you put it down, and then it plays your digital file. <laughs> right. That's, that's the thing. I mean, if HD vinyl is that good, it might sound identical to digital. Hmm. Well, presumably it's still going to have clicks and pops and crackles and all that presumably. kind of stuff. Presumably. That's another thing that gets confusing, incidentally, is, I mean, so this is an experiment. I haven't done this, but I've heard about this. If you take a modern digital recording with incredibly no noise flaws and all the rest of it, you add a little bit of uh, recorded tape hiss to it, then you play it to people and ask them which they prefer. Often people will choose the one with the hiss and they will say things like, it sounds like it has more air, it has more space, it has more sparkle in the top end. And all they're hearing is extra hiss. Huh. Well, you hear it a lot in EDM. There's so much white noise sweeps that um, there's def it definitely adds to the sound. And when it's not there, you feel like something's missing. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they've kind of turned this around the other way and they kind of say to people, oh, you know, what do you think of this denoising algorithm? 
And people say, oh, no, it sucks all the life out of it. Oh, I can feel, you know, it sounds claustrophobic and muffled and all the rest of it. I mean, the basic point is that people like to have a little bit of hiss. Yeah. So, you know, it's quite a common thing for me when I'm mastering. People kind of, engineers especially, come in and kind of really aware of the the technical flaws and the, the, the hiss and all the rest of it. Um, and you just say to them, well, no, hiss is your friend, you know. Um, don't kind of add in all kinds of digital noise suppression artifacts. I mean, if it's extreme, you might have to. Right. But if there's right. just a little bit of hiss in there, go with it. Um, I mean, the other weird thing is it, people like it when you add, if you record, you know, the sound of the runout groove on a piece of vinyl or whatever um, and add that in, people will think that that makes the, the mix sound more spacious, that will make it open up more. <laughs> just I mean, I've heard it myself. I've fooled myself doing the same thing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's... And so I think those, you know, I mean, those are things that are just built into the vinyl format. So basically what we're saying is if you took, you know, exactly the same recording and and one of them had those vinyl artifacts, lots of people would actually prefer the sound of that, even though technically those things are flaws, right? Right. Strictly speaking, it's a less accurate representation of the original signal. Um, but it's kind of like all those other analog flavors that we talked about last episode. People like that stuff. And that's a valid choice. You know, I'm not going to take that away from anybody. So anybody who tells me they they love their vinyl, I respect them. Um, the point at which I might be tempted to uh, kind of beat them over the head with a textbook is if they try and tell me that it's somehow technically superior. Right. Because, um, you know, I mean, they, they, people say things like, oh, the frequency response extends further. And I mean, it's true. You know, a CD has a, there's a, an anti-aliasing filter at about 20 kilohertz, right? It cannot reproduce sounds above 20 kilohertz. Whereas vinyl, the frequency response could extend way up beyond that. The problem is there are very few recordings that have any useful information up there. Huh. Um, there are very few speaker systems that re can reproduce it accurately. And there's certainly very few turntables that can accurately retract that information from the record accurately. Huh. Um, I'm not saying there are none, you know, but I don't think it's nearly as big a factor um, as lots of people think. And again, you come back to this issue of can you actually hear it? Um, have you tried the intermodulation distortion test from last week's episode, Steve, to see whether your sound card really can reproduce 96 kilohertz accurately? I did not do it yet. I didn't have a chance. Okay. Well, so that's your homework for this week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I could probably be, be quite a good kind of school teacher, couldn't I? You know, if I, that kind of whole sort of like slightly hectoring, bullying kind of. I think you would be great. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, so let's get to the stuff that people want to know. What to do if you want to master your stuff for vinyl. Um, do you Have you come across any of these? Have you heard any kind of suggestions out there? I haven't, to be honest. And that's interesting because I kind of, I always think EDM is one of those genres where lots of people are, you know, people are even more into getting stuff cut for, for vinyl. Um, you, would, but, you would think. I mean, I, I did, do get a lot of questions about mastering, but vinyl hasn't shown up on that. Okay. That's, well, I mean, so so there's an easy answer and then there's a more complicated answer. Um, the funny thing is that they seem to contradict each other. So the easy answer is that you don't have to do anything special for mastering for vinyl. Um, so I should take a minute at this point and say that I'm not a cutting engineer. Okay. I've never cut any vinyl in my life. Um, I have been in the same room as a lathe, but I've never even seen one operating. Okay. Um, but I have sent a ton of masters off to some of the best vinyl studios in the country over the years, including Abbey Road and Heathmans and a bunch of others. Um, and 
I think pretty much always get told, oh yeah, we cut it flat. Um, and I think the reason for that is that the mastering uh, approach that I was trained with basically grew out of that tradition of vinyl mastering. And it was just kind of tweaked when for you, CD. Well, when you say cut it flat, what did they mean? Like no EQ? Yeah, they they just mean they took my master, transferred it straight across, no extra processing needed. Gotcha. Um, so it would go through that pre-emphasis and you know, the RIAA filtering stuff that I mentioned. And well, th here's the other thing. There might be some other tweaks. So, but before I get onto those, um, just to take an example, one of the things with vinyl that you need to be careful of is to not have uh, too much stereo information in the bass. So one thing that's pretty much guaranteed to make the needle jump out of the groove is if you panned the bass hard left, say. One way to get around that is to, back then they used a thing called an elliptical filter, which is basically it would mono the bass below a certain frequency, roughly 80 hertz. You can do that because our ears are much less sensitive to directionality in bass. We get most of our information about direction uh, from mid-range and top. Okay. Which is why when you, if you have a 5.1 system, you can put your sub almost anywhere in the room and it won't necessarily sound like the, the sound that comes through that sub is coming from anywhere in particular. Right. You're, just, you're just aware of it happening in the room. So the same thing applies with a stereo signal. You can actually uh, keep the a lot of the bass content pretty much mono and our ears won't notice a big change in the stereo image. So... You know, for example, on one, if on that example, if you had a, a bass panned to the hard left, actually the low end of that bass would probably be, still be in the middle, and you would just pick up on the kind of the mid rangey finger picking kind of aspect of the sound in terms of figuring out that it was on the left hand side of the right, image. Right. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to pay attention to that when you make a mix to send it off to be cut for vinyl, because you should have an engineer out there at the cut who's going to pay attention to that stuff and apply that kind of filtering if necessary. Um, the other big bugbear for vinyl is sibilance. Um, we've had one person say that I should use a de on my voice on this podcast. I hope everybody doesn't feel that way. Um, sibilance is not something that I particularly worry about, but I know a lot of mix engineers agonize over it. Um, because it, it can be really distracting and annoying if every S in the things that you say, you know, really sizzles out at you. Um, on vinyl, it becomes an extra problem because uh, it's very hard for the format to cope with the, all that high frequency energy in a specific frequency, and it, it will distort very quickly, especially as you get towards the end of a side. So... Another thing that a vinyl cutting engineer might do is apply extra de-essing to whatever you've done, even if the overall EQ sounds pretty good already, to minimize that effect. Huh. Now, if you go to somebody like my friend Nick Watson at Fluid Mastering in London, who does vinyl cutting, he will handle all of that stuff for you as part of the package that they provide when you get a vinyl cut. Wow. So, you know, even if you give them a finished master... Say I did a master and gave it to my clients and they went to Nick to get the vinyl cut. He would not charge them a full whack mastering rate because he wouldn't need to. But included in the price of the cut, he would still keep an ear out for sibilance, problems with the bass or other phase content, you know, a few other little details like that that are specific to the vinyl format. So that's why I say really you don't need a dedicated master for vinyl. 
unless your CD is going to be super crushed, in which case I would recommend you supply a more dynamic version for the vinyl cut. And I sometimes see. I will give people a version that like has the, the final limiter taken out. So it has a few extra dBs of peak information in it. I see. Um, but in this day and age, you can't necessarily guarantee that you will have an engineer who's listening and going to make those adjustments for you. Um, so you either need to get assurance that somebody is going to do that for you, or if you suspect that the plant where you're sending it may actually be going to literally do a flat transfer of what you send them straight down to the vinyl with no kind of attention paid to those issues, then you might want to think about dealing with those things yourself before you send it. Or if you're having your stuff mastered, you want to say to... I think it's a good idea if you're having it mastered to make the engineer aware that it's going to be going to vinyl as well. There are mastering engineers who will want to charge you twice. They'll say, okay, I do one master for the CD and I do one master for the vinyl. I don't work that way. I'm not saying that's wrong, but like I say, I, I my personal philosophy is when you do mastering, you have one master that is uh, optimized for, for any format. So it's going to sound good on CD. It'll sound good if it's compressed for AC3 or MP3. It'll sound good if it's used for a vinyl cut, whatever. Um, there are people who give you separately tweaked masters for different formats. I'm not convinced that's necessary um so yeah for me if you're going to be sending your stuff off for a vinyl cut uh and you're not confident that there's going to be an engineer actually doing those kind of checks for you i would apply those principles to the cd master so not put super wide base onto the cd master and and pay attention to sibilance for example um and keep the levels sensible but i would recommend people always do that anyway and that's it. You don't have to worry about much more than that. No, exactly. Um, you know, if, if you do that and everything else, you know, you've done all the other things that we've covered in the, the podcast already correctly. You've got, you know, balance levels, balanced EQ, good dynamic control, all the rest of it. Then uh, one way of looking at it is that a great master for vinyl is automatically going to be a great master for CD. I see. You know, if you do a nice dynamic vinyl master where the bass is under control, there's no huge added phase stuff, the sibilance is there that's going to sound fantastic on CD as well. So, and that's why the stuff that I did always got cut pretty much flat because that that training that I got in mastering came from those traditions that were already there from vinyl mastering. Um, so it just kind of followed through automatically. All the stuff that I had been taught right. just translates across. I guess, I mean, you know, EDM might be a case where that's an issue because you have, you know, the kind of the wub bass um, and all those kind of things where people do use these kind of crazy stereo panning things or masses of chorus on the bass sounds, and they might really want that for the digital version. You know, that kind of could be part of the artistic vision. Yeah. Um, and then they would have to do something different with that if it was going to be cut to vinyl. So, you know, that's a situation where maybe there might be a conflict between those those two things. But, the, I mean, from... The other thing that's funny is that I often make these changes just because of my taste. You know, even if something has, if the client has not said to me, oh, this is going to go for vinyl, if I'm hearing that kind of wildly out of phase stuff in the low end, I mean, do you remember back when we were talking about phase and I said actually some people will throw up if you yeah. played them something that's completely out of phase? Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say it's that extreme, but I do think there's something quite disturbing and unnatural about lots of out of phase content or extreme panning in the low end. Um, I guess because, you know, because we're not that sensitive to directionality and bass, so to kind of be slapped in the face with it 
kind of almost feels wrong, maybe. Um, so th the point is, quite often I will go in there with maybe a multiband stereo width processor or whatever, just to to control that that disparity between the left and the right for for artistic reasons um, rather than you know for technical reasons. Right. And actually, by the point where you get it to the point where it starts to sound right, you're at the point where actually it will cut cleanly to vinyl. Huh. Um, and I've never had a complaint um, from a client about that. I mean, I usually make them aware. You know, I'll kind of say, oh, this is what I did and that's why. Um, but yeah, they, they always seem happy with that decision. So, Well, that's very cool. And uh, interesting that, um, you know, if they'd made that choice with the bass, the artist made that choice with the bass on purpose, that uh, they'd be fine with you doing that. But probably half the time they just didn't even know, think about it or know about it. I don't know. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, yes, the I don't do so many attended sessions these days, but you know, it's very common when you have an attended session, when an artist comes in and, and hears stuff on a mastering rig, they kind of go, "Whoa, I had no idea right. it sounded that way." Right. You know, um, I mean, there are people who've literally had their speakers wired out of phase in their mixing rooms and not realized, <laughs> um, because well, no, I mean, it's it's not that difficult if you're not sitting smack between the speakers or if you have unequal reflections from the walls, anything that kind of disrupts your ability to, to hear a really clear stereo image is actually going to get in your way of hearing whether those issues exist. So yeah, more often than not, it's the case of they're like, I, I wasn't aware that that was there. And actually right. I'm really gl glad that you've told me about that. Um, you know, cause sometimes you get out of phase stuff in the mid range or wherever, and it, you want to correct that as well. So yeah, I think the other possibility is that people have done it as a as a, a creative decision and then but when they hear it on the mastering rig or when you kind of talk to them about the the implications of it they're kind of like you know i probably went over the top with that right um you know it's that kind of i never met an effect i didn't like too much of kind of thing <laughs> um so um yeah I, I think i think that's that's been my experience anyway i see very cool well great info man this has been a very cool show uh, which leads us to the mastering maxim of the day. And um, I've got a little trend here of, of of maxims that I've already mentioned, so I think I need to be more careful not to give away my maxims too early in the show. But this maxim is, is master your stuff as though it was going for vinyl. You know, if you have that mindset in place of, I want this... I mean, one of the... It's, it's funny because as somebody... You know, I've been quite critical of... Of vinyl in some of the things that I've said, but I genuinely do love it as a f format and and have real kind of nostalgic feelings for it. So yeah, one of the nicest compliments I ever got from a client was when I sent them off the initial master and they were planning to have vinyl made of it. And they kind of came back and they said, it sounds so amazing. It sounds as though it's on vinyl already. <laughs> and I could have taken that the wrong way, but I, I, I just, I, I knew how that was intended, you know? And yeah. I, that they kind meant of, that as a compliment. Yeah. That, that made me really happy. And I think if you have that as a philosophy, you're going to be in great shape because, you know, there's such a great tradition of amazing sounding music on vinyl. Um, you know, none of the limitations of that format get in the way of an astounding musical experience. Right. So right. if you have that as the kind of the gold standard, I want to make this sound as good as if it was, you know, on my favorite piece of vintage vinyl and reproduce that digitally, you're going to end up with a CD master that sounds fantastic as well. Um, and that, you know, that's the goal. Wow. You can't really lose if you go for that. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome, dude. 
That was a great maxim. Definitely like something that somebody could take away and just follow and always get great results. No. That's my goal. That's my aim. That's good. You achieved it. Excellent. Anyway, if you guys uh, like what you're hearing on the show and you want to hear more, you can head over to our website at themasteringshow.com. Sign up for our hot list, which is our email list on the site. Get a lot of uh, cool info from Ian, and he keeps you posted on when the shows are coming out and gives you the show notes and stuff like that. Definitely worth being on that. Definitely. And if you want to uh, see some of the other great podcasts that uh, Steve has been involved with, head over to edmmr.com. If you want to see more stuff about the kind of things that I've been talking about on the show, you can go to my website, which is productionadvice.co.uk. You can connect with me on Twitter at Ian Shepard. Steve, are you on Twitter? I'm barely on Twitter. I've had a couple accounts through my life, but my latest one is Steve Cherubino, and I, I just never go there. I don't even know how many followers I have, and I never post, but I plan on doing it in the future. It's just, it just hasn't happened yet. But well, that's cool. But you're on Facebook, right? I am on Facebook, Steve Cherubino. There you go. Uh, yeah, come and say hello. We're always glad to talk to fans of the show. Please leave us a rating and a review at your podcasting venue of choice. Sounds good. And so, Steve, I want to know, I mean, you opened this up saying, why did you think vinyl would be a good topic for an episode? Do you think vinyl was a good topic for an episode? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's just, you know, I learned, I think your Mastering Maxim summed it up. I mean, that pretty much encompassed everything that the show was about and gave some good walkaway advice. So, uh, yeah, man, I loved it. Good. Excellent. Well, Well, um, I hope everybody else loved it, too. Come back for the next one. Absolutely. Thanks for listening.